everybody. This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and thank everybody for subscribing on Apple Podcasts or following us on Spotify. And especially want to thank you guys for spreading the word about the show. I've been getting so many great messages about the show and about all of the amazing guests that I've had on the show and a lot of great suggestions for future guests. I've been getting a lot of great ones and I've been reaching out to a lot of amazing musicians and people in the music industry. And I'm really thankful for everybody involved, um, especially the guests that have been on the show and Osiris Media. Once again, you can check out all of their other shows at OsirisPod.com. They've got a lot of really great content uh, there. So go check that out. As you probably know, a lot of musicians are making music during this time and recording and releasing music. Uh, This week, Blake Mills and Pino Palladino put out a track called Just Wrong. And it's an amazing track. It's all over the place musically, but so beautifully done. And uh, I'm a huge fan of, of both of them. So it's great to hear them collaborate. I also wanted to mention a couple other musicians that I've been checking out uh, during this time. I recently discovered Madison Cunningham. I'd heard about her quite a bit, but uh, I've been checking out her recent releases. Uh, She's just an incredible artist, great singer and guitarist, and I hope to get her on the show too. Uh, Also, I'm a huge fan of Nick Hakim. He put something out. I guess it's been out for a little while, but I finally checked out his newest album. And uh, his his previous album, Green Twins, was like on constant rotation. So I I urge you to go check out Nick Hakim and all of his releases. D'Angelo actually included one of his tracks on uh, a mix he recently put out through Sonos, which I also recommend checking out. D'Angelo is definitely one of my favorite artists of all time. So it was cool to hear him just play a bunch of his influences. He also talks a little bit about meeting some of his heroes and a little bit about his uh, creative process. So definitely check that out too. Actually, speaking of D'Angelo, the one time that I got to work with him directly was with my guest today, uh, Christian McBride, who included me in a James Brown tribute concert that was one of the highlights of my career, to be honest, just being around the original drummers of the JBs, Clyde Subblefield and Jabo Starks. And we had Fred Wesley and Pee Wee Ellis. D'Angelo was one of the featured guests, Angelique Kijo, Aloe Black, and many other great musicians. And Christian McBride uh, was the music director. And you'll hear us talk a little bit about that show and his obsession with James Brown. Um, as you'll hear in the show, he's an incredible musician, but also a music historian. He not only knows about every genre of music, but he can play in any genre of music on the bass. I'm really, really fortunate to have met Christian McBride. He has included me in some incredible concerts. Besides the James Brown tribute concert, we also did a 50th anniversary concert for the Apollo Theater, which included all sorts of incredible guests. Um, We played with Booker T, along with Questlove on drums and Gary Bartz for a few nights at the Blue Note. I also got to guest on his Live at Tonic album, uh, which was just a huge treat for me to play with him and his band and to be on that recording. I'm excited to get into this conversation with the great Christian McBride. First, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, 
He's one of the great bass players of our time. He's an arranger, producer, musical director, educator, and radio host. It's my pleasure to welcome today's Plus One, Mr. Christian McBride. I've been a huge fan of yours for so, so long, but uh, to, to really go on this deep dive, I realize how much you have done in your career and how incredibly diverse um, your repertoire is, you know, and all the different people you've played with and the things that you've curated and now hosting shows on NPR. And you're the type of dude that just really never rests is what it seems like. You're the same way. <laughs> I mean, I stay busy, but you know, I looking at your, looking at your schedule. I mean, I, and I'm curious um, how it's been since, since COVID and, and uh, kind of the quarantine times have hit us, how you've dealt with it and, and what you've been up to, you know, to keep yourself busy and, and happy. I got to admit, man, I've been okay. You know, I actually have been pretty there was a part of me that was hoping that I would get some sort of a break from the road. I surely didn't want it like this. Yes. But uh, I would say over the last, you know, I mean, since pretty much since 1990. Right. Um, I, I've been on the road nonstop and it was it was really starting to get to me and uh, I wanted a break. And so um, I say all of that to say that I've actually enjoyed being on lockdown right right <laughs> um just to be in my own home for a change and to get to hang with my wife melissa and our two dogs and uh not have to worry about getting to the airport at five o'clock in the morning i can relate you know? i can relate it's now on the other hand i i do realize i'm i'm very fortunate because as artistic director of of the newport jazz festival um, doing my NPR show, Jazz Night in America, and other things, I, I have had a bit of income coming in. Right. So, and and I, I definitely got that PPP. You know, I yeah. want to make it very clear that I, I was I was never so um, so well off that I didn't need that extra help. Right, right. <laughs> I, I did as well. I mean, so many people that I've spoken to since starting this show, which really just started as like something to, to have a little fun and a learning experience for me, but it's become something more, you know, for a lot of reasons, a lot of people are sitting at home so um, they can listen. And then also so many artists that I know, like yourself, are off the road. And so every so many of us never would have taken um, the liberty to just or even had the, you know, had the idea to be like, okay, I'm going to take, you know, six, nine months off, off the road to focus on all these other things. But so many of us have this list of all these things that we want to dive into. You know what I mean? Sure. Whether it's writing for a next project, recording, I got to, you know, build a studio and start really producing my own stuff right at home. But, you know, as I kind of was doing a little bit of research, I also realized you know, and I've always known this, that I can attribute some of my musical highlight moments to you. Um, and that being uh, one of the greatest shows that I've ever been a part of was the James Brown tribute at the Hollywood Bowl. And this was in yes. 2014. When I heard you play the JB's music, it blew my mind. Because I grew up listening to your records and I knew you as like, possibly my favorite upright player, my favorite upright player of my generation. 
And to hear you play the JB's music the way that you did, not only playing it, but you heard every part going on. You know what I mean? Anything that was like, every, even versions and eras. And um, I thought I was a JB head, but I, I, I bow down to you, my friend, as <laughs> the high, the most highest um, James Brown um, aficionado, I would say. And in that particular concert, you know, D'Angelo was a part of it, Aloe Black, um, yeah. and so many, Angelique Kijo killed it. Um, yes, Chadwick, yes, Chadwick Bozeman, rest in peace, hey, was a part of it. Betty LeVette. Betty LeVette. But also, yeah. man, getting to play with Fred, Mousy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you put together Clyde. I mean, to think about it now, yeah. because... I don't know if those guys got played together after that, and they they hadn't played together previous to that in a long time. Yeah, I think Clyde passed away less than a year later, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Right. You know, so um, that had to have been one of their one of their final appearances together. Right. You know, Jab Jabbo and Clyde, and Jabbo, of course, passed away uh, a year after Clyde, if right. I'm not mistaken. So. Yeah, that was a wonderful moment to get to spend with all of those cats, man. You know, the hang in the lobby was one of the greatest oh. hangs of my life. <laughs> Getting to hang and ask questions and and just be a part of them because because they had this this brotherhood and they hadn't really been around each other in a long time. So 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 just right. to be um, kind of around them reuniting and their kinship was was special you know after it was over i don't know if you knew this but um lola love one of the dancers she's she danced with she's in the soul power film and and when we were king she's one of those dancers on the side yeah she showed up in the lobby after the gig yeah and so uh she was there you know fred clyde peewee jabbo mousy I mean, it was like, uh, and Yana, who was uh, one of the dancers on the gig with us that night, it was uh, it was literally a, a, a James Brown reunion. Yeah, yeah. And the ride to the the sound check, I believe it was. I don't think you were there on on this particular van ride. You had already gone over to prepare, and and I and I rode with the entire JBs essentially, and got lost uh. and in traffic. So. It, we got into it. Well, that was the thing is that they, because the Hollywood Bowl was right there. But the driver. How could they get lost? I can't remember what happened. <laughs> or no, maybe it was on the way to rehearsal. They must have been on the way to rehearsal because. Oh, that's, that's right. Because rehearsal was out in uh, in Burbank. And right, so right. that's what it was. And it, we got lost and we were up in the hills driving these hills. And then all, and like at the first 20 minutes, it was quiet. Oh, was and then funny. Fred said, man, remember when we got lost in Japan? And then they to, they started telling stories about Japan with James and like traveling all over the country. And Danny Ray was like, man, he made me drive, drive this car back from Detroit to Jersey. And like, I just, <laughs> I'm just sitting there like, oh my gosh, I'm a part of this right now getting to hear these stories and it was just that part alone yeah, not man. i mean the music was amazing but that that hang uh was really special man so i, I wanted to thank you again for that you know because it's one of my fondest memories oh well, man listen one of my fondest memories from that gig and i bet you remember my reaction to this we were rehearsing say it loud i'm black and i'm proud yeah and when we got to the bridge you started playing that jimmy nolan part 
I mean, you know, again, I hear a lot of cats who can play the hell out of that James Brown stuff. But you had the you had the same tone, the same inflection, the same feel. And man, you start playing Jimmy Nolan's part, and I just I just remember looking at you like <laughs> it, it was like the record was playing. <laughs> I was like, damn, Kraz, go ahead, boy. That's my favorite guitar playing, man. When I heard that, when I heard those records, man, that changed everything for me. You know, it, it oh, just yeah, hit man. me in a certain way. So um, it was an honor to, to to be able to dig into those parts and play them with you guys, man. Wow. What a what a what every a time we've every time we've played together, man, it's always been a gas. You know, you are you are a great musician, man. I was trying to remember. I I mean, it's been like 20 years, yeah. I believe, since we since we first met. Yep. And um, I remember when I had my old band. Christian McBride band with Jeff Keezer and Terion Gully and yeah. Ron Blake. Love those guys. And man. Um, oh man, and we and we used to be crossing paths with you guys with, with Soul Live all the time. Yeah, yeah. And um, man, first time I heard you, I was just like, okay, I got to get some of that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you invited me down to Tonic, and that ended up you know, at, on the live album. And to this day, people hit me up all the time, man. Now yeah, that that live at Tonic. And I was like, and I remember I just kind of jumped on stage. I didn't know what was going on, but uh, I was like, man, if I can get to play with Christian, I- I'm in, man. I'm jumping on that. That was a special night too, it man. Was. I'm I'm hoping to, uh, I, I got to reissue that one of these days. Cause you know, it's not, it's not up on Spotify or Tidal. It's not up really? on any of the digital platforms. Ah, okay. Nope. Yeah. Well, that needs to get out. Cause that was, that was like in circulation amongst the soul live fans too everyone was like yo you need to mess with this live at tonic album people were all about that man And then we also got to do a gig with Booker T uh, playing a lot. He had made a new record, but also got to play a bunch of his old <laughs> stuff. And Gary Bartz was on the gig. Quest Love on drums. Another amazing memory for me was that that night. That gig was actually quite, um, I was a little miffed, but I didn't have time to be too miffed. Right. Because I remember uh, I was asking Amir, I said, hey, what are we playing on this gig? Yeah. He said, well, it's the music that we did with Booker T for his upcoming record. I said, well, what is it? Yeah. He's like, well, I'll send you the MP3s. And I never got them. <laughs> wow, so I did not I'm know letting that. Them, like, up, up until the day of the gig. Wow. I'm like, yo, where are the tracks? Yeah. And he was like, oh, I'll, I'll get them to you. So I got the tracks yeah. that day on open <laughs> no night. No way. So, I, so when I came to Soundcheck, I don't know if you remember, but yeah. I was kind of panicked. I yeah, was like, yeah. say, man. You got like some, you got a cheat sheet or something, yeah. you know, and um, I'm like scr- scribbling the, like these chord changes down at the last minute and I'm, I'm kind of pissed. I'm like, man, I can't believe this, you know, because uh, I really, really, really hate being unprepared, yeah, you know? Yeah. And so uh, after sound check was over, I went to that Starbucks right around the corner on 6th Avenue, like in, in uh, 9th or 10th Street, somewhere around there. And uh, I just sat in there until it was time for the gig. And I just wrote out lead sheets the whole night. Wow. (laughs) You know, what's crazy. I mean, that's how good you are is that I had no idea. 
I had no idea. I was sweating bullets, man. I think I got together with Quest, but maybe you were on the road or something. And we, I think yeah, I got I think together so. with Booker and, and and Amir at some point, like you know, in their little studio at the Roots Studio at at Fallon, and like just we had like ten minutes right. or something. So it wasn't like we were that prepared. But uh, right, right. But man, that was a fun and, night. And then so I'm learning. I, I got I write down these changes. I write down these chords from the from the CD or, or from the tracks that he sent me. And then once we get to the gig, he's like, yeah, we, we put a couple of breaks in there on, yeah. on like this track here. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh. <laughs> I was like, you're doing this on purpose. You just, you want people to see me fumble on the five yard line. Right, right. <laughs> There's certain people that do that. I've, I've been on some gigs where cats like, I did a gig with Lonnie Smith once where there was no communication whatsoever. So I just learned like the last couple albums because I had a couple weeks till the gig but I didn't no communication whatsoever and I show up to the gig and I show him the list and he looks at it looks at me laughs you know and then and then basically yeah, walks, right. on, <laughs> walks on stage and he goes I don't know what we're doing but it's not that you know and I and I just Man. got and then of course there, of course he did play some of that music but half of it was just okay just use your ears <laughs> exactly that's right yeah them old cats man they um I mean, Freddie Hubbard used to do that all the time, man. You know, I played in this band for two and a half years, but at no point did I ever feel actually comfortable. Right, right, right. <laughs> they like to keep you like that. We played three, four gigs in a row, and then, you know, he would turn around one night and be like, uh, theme for Kareem. Now, I thank goodness I knew that song. Right. But, like, we never, ever, ever played it on the gig. Right. We never rehearsed it, never talked it down. And so, uh, like, the drummer didn't know it. And so, like, you know, Freddie's like, theme for Kareem. And we're all looking at each other like, uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> are we going to be okay with that? Right, right. You know, he he would just call it anyway if you ain't know it. Yeah. Tough. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to know it next time. <laughs> you're going to know it next time. That's right. <laughs> so I want to take it back a little bit because I'm curious what the McBride uh, household was like musically growing up. I know your dad was a musician, great uncle was mm -hmm. a musician, and your your uncle and your uncle was in in the music business. So what was what was what was going on in the house? What was, what were the records on, on and what what kind of rate what was on the radio? Primarily an R&B and soul household, mostly Motown and James Brown and uh Gamble and Huff. Oh yeah. My mother had a a huge closet full of uh 7-inch 45s. Pretty much every hit R&B and soul single from like, I would say 1974 up in um, 64 up until, you know, whenever this was, you know, 77, 78, whenever it was. And then on occasion, you know, I would go to my grandfather's house and he would be listening to Beethoven or Brahms, Harry Belafonte or you know, something a little off the beaten path, you know. Um, and then I would go to my great uncle's house and he would have Mingus, Coltrane, Miles, Bird, Dizzy, the hardcore jazz man of the family. Right. And then I would go to shows with my uncle. You know, we were always either going to R&B or gospel shows. Right. So uh, it was a pretty diverse I had a lot of different sounds coming at me when I was at, 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 at when I was a kid, but it was primarily R and B and soul. And was that? Do you remember a specific 
um, artist or recording that made kind of pulled you towards the bass, or how did the bass kind of become your instrument? Uh, my dad, yeah. watching my dad play. Yeah. By the time I got old enough to really understand and appreciate what he was doing, he was playing with Mongo Santa Maria. Right, right. I would just see my dad play with Mongo all the time, and that music was so powerful and funky. You know, just watching Mongo play those congas, man, yeah. and, and they get those rhythms going, man. It just, uh, you know, it, it, and it's funny because, like, that whole word, like, genre, I didn't know what that meant until, like, way later in life, yeah. you know. I never even had this conscious thought of, well, how does Mongo Santa Maria relate to James Brown or to Coltrane or to Miles or to Beethoven or to uh, Marion Makiba? None of that mattered to me. It was just like, this is all some great music, whatever it is. It's just, it's killing, yeah, you know? Yeah. So um, watching my dad play, I just, it hit me. I was like, I think I want to try that. Yeah. You know, so um, he had a custom made Carl Thompson electric bass at that time. Right. Okay. And um, my, my parents actually, I was eight years old when this happened. And so my parents uh, had already split up, but I had a good, relationship with my dad so i i saw him often so I, I told my mom i wanted an electric bass and her and my dad got together i got my first electric bass the following year i fell in love with it man i just my dad came over and he showed me uh my first couple of songs i feel lucky that at age nine i kind of knew what i wanted to do for the rest of my life right that's powerful i mean i i did struggle with you know whether music or pro football at right, one point, right. <laughs> but uh, mu music won out. <laughs> and when did that evolve into an upright bass? Uh, when I got to middle school, yeah. um, I'm playing around the house and just, you know, listening to all my mom's records and trying to learn the bass line off of every record I could listen to. My mother was like, oh, OK, so you you serious about this? Yeah. OK. Well, if you're serious, we're going to get you some training. And so she sent me to a middle school in Southwest Philly that had a very uh, reputable music program. And that's and, and then I had to play in the school orchestra. Of course, you can't play electric bass in the orchestra. Ah, so interesting. Okay. that's when I started playing the acoustic. From there, you know, you were at the Philly High School for Creative and Performing Arts with a pretty incredible cast of uh, classmates. Questlove, Joey D, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Lil John. Uh, I'm sure the list boys, keeps... Boys to Men. Boys to Men, right. And I think Tariq was yep. there too, right? Tariq, yeah. It was nuts. Amel LaRue was there oh, as well. Amel. But she, yeah. she was yeah, she was a couple of years after us, but she was there crazy did you guys did you have any idea at the time that all of you guys would become the legends and let me clarify those are the people that became popular right right there were hundreds of other kids in that school who were really amazing they just didn't stay with it you right. know it was a great great school actually little john didn't he played in the all city band with us uh, but okay. he didn't go to oh, our he high didn't school go there because quest love was on the show and we talk a, a lot about that era and he talks about right. how he used to get beat out by Lil John. It must have been in that right. in, right. in the All State in, in the All City All City Van. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. he used to have to sit back and watch Lil John. I used to beg him. I was like, come on man, you could you can get in the band. He's like, nah, nah, nah. I, 
I don't want to play no jazz. Lil John got that. Yeah. I'm like, come on, dude. Yeah. You know, yeah. be the both of y'all. Be like Jambo and Clyde for real. Right, you know? right, right. <laughs> that is funny. And he was like, nah, 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 I'll stick with the funk. You know. And so what was that scene like for you? I mean, because obviously you were listening to all sorts of music. Was the school, did they kind of promote like multi-genre or was it kind of you did jazz or you did this or you did that? i tell you, man, our high school was... Uh, a sort of perfect, almost utopian place. Right. Because in retrospect, they really did let us be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Obviously, there was a correct uh, curriculum and there was a there was sort of a, a repertoire-based curriculum. But they were very much like, hey, write your own music if you want. You know, we, we, we were allowed to bring in our own arrangements. Yeah. It was a great school, man. The cats be rehearsing out in the hallway and in the bathroom. And I mean, it really was like the TV show fame. Right. You know, that's the first time I had ever been in a culture where blacks, whites, Latinos, gay, straight, trans, everybody was in this one building. And I don't remember anybody ever fighting over anything. It was all about the art. Right. Everybody was inspired by one another. It was like, oh, uh, are you gay? Fine. Show me how to play this B-flat chord because I'm having trouble. Right. Right? That's what, that's what, that's what mattered most. You yeah. know? Hey, thanks for hooking me up with that information. Hug, hug, smooch, smooch. Yeah. And then we go on about our, 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 you know, have our harmonious time together in school. You know? Having a white teacher teach you about, you know, African rhythms. We didn't care. Yeah. We didn't know about African rhythms. So whoever shows us the rhythm... Now we know, right? You know, right, so right. it was a really wonderful, wonderful place, you know. And then my my best friend throughout high school was Joey D. Francesco. Right. I mean, he was a child superstar. He was playing gigs around Philly when he was like nine. Wow. You know, much much later. You know, every generation is always like some kid that comes along that just plays great, right? right? right. And so, you know, what's funny? I I have to toe this line between. Because, you know, my wife and I have a, a nonprofit called Jazz House Kids where we, you know, we we nurture young kids yeah. on, on on jazz education. And so, like, every once in a while, some kid will show up who's like 10 or 11 years old and they're playing great. Mm-hmm. Right. And like everybody gets impressed when they see a kid who who is that advanced. And the famous question always is, oh, my God, have you ever seen anything like that before? That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Now, of course, I can't be honest and say, yes, I actually have seen something <laughs> like that before. Because right. I grew up with Joey D. Francesco. Right. You know, right. Joey D. Francesco was playing like McCoy Tyner and Jimmy Smith at age nine. So, you know, it's I I'm I, I feel bad. Like, yeah. it's hard to be impressed by a kid. <laughs> it's so crazy, too, because. You know, I run into that as well, and I'm always blown away by that. And sometimes it's like you end up talking to a kid, to, you know, to to a kid that's ten or eleven that can play all this stuff, and they still are. Yes. A kid. You forget they're still a kid. You know what I mean? Right. And then you're like, right. where does this come from? Because I think part of it, yes, is you know they have the diligence and the work ethic combined with talent. But then there's some people that it right. just like this weird channel just happens. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you're aware with, uh, with, of, uh, Derek trucks, but he's been a friend of mine since, you know, oh, since, we were, since we were teenagers 
And he sounds amazing now, but he's he's sounded like that since he was like 12, and he's gotten better. Is that but right? I, he was 12. It's funny because I went back and watched like a, a video of him because he was younger than me. You know, he's two years younger than me, but we would tour together a lot during those early Soul Live days. So we right. were like the young kids on, on the on the tour together, but he'd been on the road forever. So he was taking me around, showing me the ropes of like what touring right. was all about. Right. And meanwhile, he's 18 and I'm like 21 or two or something. And, uh, but it's just interesting because I look back at those videos and he's like this little kid that's just into baseball, or whatever, but he's playing this like incredible, he's channeling on another level. But, um, a lot of the, I've, and I had, I had no idea he was a, a child. Yeah. Of prodigy. Yeah, he was, he was playing, yeah. I mean, he played with the Allman brothers at like, I think 11 or, or 12. He started 11? sitting in with Jeez. him. Stuff, yeah. And there's a kid named Taz, Brandon Niederauer. I don't know if you've heard him, but I started. I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gave him some lessons when he was like, I think 10. I started working with him. And, you know, he'd be asking me these funny questions about my dog and, and what it was like to have a signature guitar. He's like, oh, my God. And then and he'd be, you know, he was a kid, but like a, a smart kid. But then he'd pick up the guitar. And it was funny. I remember I was showing him like a Hendrix tune and he was spacing out, kind of looking at my guitars because I had guitars on the walls. And I'm playing this thing. And I'm like, oh, man, he's not listening, man. He's And then uh, once he snaps out of it, he looks at me and he plays the riff right to me. Right back, right back to you. me. He'd right. been listening and staring. And so, but it's interesting. Um, and then you always wonder like how they're going to evolve and, and into a human. <laughs> cause also, cause then all of a sudden, cause then they get all this attention as a kid and then you right. get, you know, right. um, thank God, Brandon. And is that's always also, dangerous. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Thank God Brandon, you know, has a has a strong sh- head on his shoulders and Derek as well. But you never know how that's going to go, man. You never know, man, because we we've seen it go both ways. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Thank goodness, Joey was. You know, I mean, like you said, like that sort of where they channel that sort of other thing from. You know, I watched Joey just shred on the organ and piano, and then at age seventeen, he decides, "Oh, I think I'll also try playing the trumpet." Yeah. You know, it's just like, man, stop it! You know, just stop it, please. <laughs> And then, like, within a year, he's, like, killing Killin'. on trumpet. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, Joey, you know what? You you keep messing around here. So you're going you're gonna to get hurt. I saw him at a jam session playing <laughs> the bass, the left-hand bass, and he's killing this organ right. solo. I remember. Yes. And then he picks up the trumpet, and everybody in the whole place. This was at North Sea at one of those late night yep. thing. And everyone's yep. like, oh, God damn it. He picks up the trumpet. It was, like, it was like, stop it, man. <laughs> Yeah. And now he's playing the saxophone. Is he? Oh, no. Man. I told him, I said, I said, look, man, stay off the bass. Yes, please. Because if you start playing the bass, please. we're going to have a guitar, problem. Please. We'll be right back after this short break. you a little bit about Ray Brown. Uh, I know he was a a very special person in your life and a mentor. What was it like learning from him and and how did you actually link with him? I met Ray Brown in 1991. I was playing a duo gig with uh, Benny Green at this place on 9th University place called the Knickerbocker. 
Benny's manager at that time was very good friends with Ray Brown. Right. And uh, Ray Brown, Ray was playing at the Blue Note, and Marianne Topper, that was her name, uh, she she soon became my manager after, after this. She said, hey, I'm going to bring Ray to come hear you guys tonight. I'm going to bring him in for your last set. And Benny Green and I both were like, oh, my God, no, please don't do not do that. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we were crossing our fingers, hoping that, you know, Ray would be too tired. Uh, you know, because I think, yeah. man, he just played at the Blue Note. He doesn't feel like coming, hanging out and hearing more music, you know, especially hearing two, two you know, two young cats trying to play like him and Oscar Peterson. He doesn't want to hear that. Yeah. So Marianne brought him and Ray came and um, he, he sat down. And he liked what he heard, much to our pleasant surprise. And uh, we went and sat with Ray and Marianne at the end of the night. Benny had met Ray once before, but I hadn't met him. So uh, I was really trying hard not to be too much of a fanboy. And because, uh, you know, I, I figured he had to have been tired and all of that. But he was very complimentary. He liked what he heard. He's like, hey, man, you know, it's really great to hear some some young cats trying to swing and and, and play some play some standards, you know, yeah. and really get inside of 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 them. You know, this is uh, I, I made a good choice coming to see you guys tonight. And so he invited us. This was on a Saturday night, and his closing night at the Blue Note was the following night, Sunday. He said, uh, "I'm gonna put you guys on my guest list for tomorrow night." And uh, we we're like, "Oh man, this is awesome!" And so we went to the Blue Note. We had seats right at that front table. Like right, right next to the stairs, right. going up to the to the stage. Oh yeah, Ray's bass was pointed like his f holes were pointed literally like right at my head. Yeah, and so like all the sound from the bass was like coming right at me. Yeah, I'm telling you, man, that's that's probably one of the top five most important events of my entire life. You know, hearing somebody playing that instrument like that, that close, right. That just it blew my mind forever, man. Just uh, the sound that came from that instrument, um, the the yeah. power of his pulse. You know, even though they were playing straight ahead right. jazz, it felt like R and B. You know, because it just had that driving. You know, you wanted to dance. You know, that's when. You know, I mean, I always realized it, but I mean, like pocket is pocket. You know, whether if it's funk, whether if it's swing. Whether it's the clave, whatever it is, yeah, if that, that yeah. pocket's got to be tight, you know. And Ray Brown was swinging, walking in bass lines, man. And I mean, it was just the sound and the feel and the notes. It was just all getting in my body, man. And um, watching him play, he was having so much fun, you know, because I was always taught, yeah, you yeah. know, jazz is supposed to be serious. You know, this is intellectual music. You know, you're, you're not like them other cats. You know what I mean? And... Ray Brown was was just having so much yeah. fun. My life changed after that night, man. I mean, Ron Carter's still one of my biggest heroes, and I, I will always be a Ron Carter lifer. But after that night, I was uh, I went back to my apartment. Yeah. I shared for the rest of the night. And I was like, now, what was that Ray was doing? Let me see. He had his fingers like this, and he, I think he, right, he had right, a setup. Right. Like, I mean, like I, I went deep, man. And um, about... Nine months later, nine to ten months later, Benny Green replaced Gene Harris in Ray's trio. And so I was so happy for him. Not too long after that, Ray had a gig in Pittsburgh and he called me up and he said, uh, hey, um, 
I got this big thing in Pittsburgh. Uh, they want me to put together something special. So I'm going to play a set with the trio. Right. I'm going to play a little solo bass. And then I want to do something with yep. you and John Clayton. Yep. Hence the band Super Bass was formed. We played together wow. at least twice a year for the rest of Ray's life. And to get to stand, I mean, to get to hang and, and learn from Ray Brown was one thing, but then to stand next to him and play with him wow. as, a, as, a, as a bass player, Heavy. I, I feel very, very fortunate. And I understand you have his bass now. Is it, am I correct? I do. Yeah, I do. Wow, yep. heavy. When he passed away, he had um, he had three bases. The Smithsonian has one. I have one, and John Clayton has the other. It's funny because you're you're playing. You know the way you describe Ray. You know watching you play. No one in the audience can help but move because even if you're swinging, like you said, it's still funky. And that's what right, I think right. really appealed to me and a lot of people my in my generation. Because as we were coming up, I was listening to like jazz from the 50s and not a lot right. of current jazz. You know what I mean? And, I, and I'd be listening to that and then I'd be listening to funk and soul music. But when you came came around and Roy... And, you know, Tim Warfield and like your guys whole crew, I was like, oh, shit. And like Bradley's (laughs) and that whole scene. I used to go to smoke. I mean, so I was, you know, I'm just a few years younger than you. So I used to come out as a kid and see you guys. And that really changed the game, you know, for us. And uh, that time period was special. I mean, you look back at all these eras and a lot of times I have people on the show. I had Schofield on the show. We talked about this a lot that, you know, I, I was, I was talking to him about, Oh man, your era, the seven early seventies, like George Duke and Cobham and right. whatever. And he's like, you know, we were just thinking about, Oh, and miles and Coltrane and da da da. And like, so every, every era has a new generation. And then we connect, oh, you know, we connect through certain people, you know what I mean? So not yep. only were we looking up to you, but you have this direct connection, having played with McCoy and Sonny and Herbie, Pat Metheny, and then carrying the torch, you know, forward. And I'm, I'm curious, like what it was like, you know, playing with all these legends coming up as a youngster. Were you freaking out? Like, what was it like coming like get on, on these first gigs with, with these legends? You know what I mean? Hell yes. I was freaking out. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm still freaking out. Honestly, man, I, I listen back, you know, every now and then I'll hear like some recording I played on. I'm like, wow, yeah. that really happened. You know, I, I wish I could have that back so I could play better, you know. Oh, yeah. But, man, getting to play with those cats like, you know, Freddie Hubbard and McCoy and Joe Henderson. W- w- when I was in high school and I'm listening to all these records, you know, yeah. part of the reason why I couldn't wait to move to New York is because it, it, it was, you know, all of the cats that I was listening to, they all seemed to live in New York. Right. So it just seemed to be sort of a pragmatic decision. Like, well, if I want to maybe meet these cats and then maybe even get the opportunity to play with them one day, I guess I should go to New York. I mean, Philly's not that far from New York, but 
it's a long way away in terms of certain opportunities that you would want, right, you know? Right. So, um, I, I decided to, um, that I was going to go to college, but the real reason was so I could be in New York. Right. Right. And, um, fortunately it's, it's not a very long trip and cats who were in New York always came through Philly anyway. So I got to meet people like Bobby Watson and the late, great Dr. Billy Taylor and Max Roach and, uh, Kenny Barron and Buster Williams, all these cats who would come through Philly, I would meet them and, you know, be, oh, yeah, we heard about you. You know, you're you, you, that young bass player. You know, things really sort of uh, started happening after I met Wynton, Wynton Marcellus, because he actually let me sit in with his band at the Academy of Music one night. Tane, Jeff Tane Watts was playing drums. The Marcus Roberts, who he had just discovered, yeah, yeah. was playing piano. I think after that happened, things started to snowball because uh, I met Branford not too long after that, like literally like maybe five or six weeks after that. And he was like, oh, yeah, I heard about you, man. Winton told me about you. And then Branford and then Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison, all them yeah. cats that were like the young lions of the 80s. Right, you know, right. Uh, Wallace Roney, Gary Thomas, yeah. Ralph Peterson Jr. And so by the time I got to New York, a lot of the younger cats knew who I was already. So, um, yeah, I was totally freaked out getting a chance to play with those guys. My first gig ever in New York, uh, I played with Bobby Watson. James Williams played piano and Victor Lewis played drums. And I'm like, listen, you guys don't realize like four nights ago, I'm listening to you guys on records like, man, yeah. I sure would be honored to play with them one day. <laughs> and now I'm actually on a gig with them. Yeah. And uh, I'm freaking out, man. So you went to New York to to study at Juilliard, but pretty soon after getting there, Bobby Watson took you out on the road. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So how long were you actually yeah. studying at Juilliard? I I went for a year. Yeah. Yeah, I, I struggled through a year. And <laughs> I only struggled because um, I really valued what I learned at Juilliard, but my heart was really into meeting the cats and going to jam sessions. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, you remember, you know, I, I had a gig with Jesse Davis at Augie's. Oh, yeah, Augie's, which became and, Smoke. Uh, <laughs> that was my brother. The right. thing was they, they wouldn't card anybody there. So I would go into Augie's. Well, right. I started going to Augie's when I was 16 and started wow. seeing cats up there. And Augie would be hanging around, you know, walking around, right. like saying hi to everybody every That's night. Right. That was the spot because my brother, my brother went to school up there. And so he would sneak me in there. Anyway, yeah. I loved that place, you know. to this, to this, I smoke still. Well, who knows now, but is smoke still... Happening? I think they're doing okay. okay. At least uh, I'm, I'm going to knock on wood. I know yeah. they were doing a uh, you know online stream okay, good, thing, good. like most a lot of other clubs. Augie's is where I first met Brad Meldow, oh, yeah. Mark Whitfield, all, all the young, all, all my peers. Whitfield's like one of my guys, man. He really took me under yeah. his wing when I moved to New York, and and yeah, he I consider him like you know like one of the. He's like my Ray Brown, you know, he's like the dude who's yeah, just, he's one of the baddest guys and just the sweetest person. Sweetheart, ever. man. Totally. I actually sweet. just came across a picture of, it must be from like the late 80s of you, Whitfield, 
uh, Tim Warfield and and Roy. <laughs> um, and, oh, and you right. guys are like little kids, but with big ass, like big suits on, <laughs> oversized suits on. Can you talk a little bit about being in New York during that time and, and Bradley's and like what what was kind of going on with like because you guys were also getting a lot of press and stuff. At least in my world, like I was like, oh man, all of a sudden it felt like kind of a, a renaissance period and a little like a resurgence. I agree. Yeah, man, it was, I thought it was a very exciting period. I mean, one of the reasons why growing up, I'm listening to all of these records, uh, all of the classic records, you know, your Miles, your Coltrane's, your Oscar Peterson's, whatever it was. And I wanted to somehow be around that level of greatness. Yeah. But then there was the younger musicians, like I mentioned earlier, like Winton and Branford yeah. and Wallace Roney and Terrence Blanchard, Donald Harrison. They were probably the first group of young musicians that really made jazz relevant to the, the masses again, you know, um, we all remember what, uh, what a stir Winton created when he arrived, you know? So his rise to fame almost, almost single-handedly made jazz resurgent in the general public again. So I got caught up in that. I was a huge Winton fan, you know, and then once I got to meet him and, you know, spend some time around him, then I really wanted to be a part of that. Right. You know, I met Roy Hargrove. See, I don't know if you would have remembered this. Downbeat Magazine sponsored something called Music Fest USA. Yes, I do, actually. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. yeah. And then and it was the national, the national um, high school and college big band and combo competition. Yeah. So they had the first one in 87, April 87. Word had already gotten out about Roy. And one, one of the trumpet players in our school was like, man, this this is supposed to be the new cat, man. He, they say he sounds like Clifford Brown and Lee Morgan and Freddie combined. Yeah. And I thought, well, if we got a whole crop of young trumpet players like Winton, Terrence, and Wallace, he must really be good. Right. You know? So we went to Chicago. Most of us, we, we were not only worried about you know, competing and, and winning, but well, we wanted to hear Roy Hargrove. Right. And so we found out where the uh, Southwest regionals were. So that, you, know, you grew up in, in, in Dallas. Yeah. Uh, you went to high school in Dallas. And so uh, we met him and we saw him and uh, yeah, his, his reputation was, was correct. Right. <laughs> and I mean, he was playing like that. He was 17 at that time just playing the hell out of the trumpet. Yeah. And we met him and he was cool, fun to be around. And, and me, him and Joey D started a jam session that night. Yeah. And of course, these were the days when if you wanted to keep in touch with somebody out of state, you had to make it special. You know, you couldn't just call up Philly to Dallas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, right. that was a long distance, expensive call, yeah, you know, yeah. but somehow me and Roy kept in touch and, um, you know, sporadically, Around 89, I I graduated high school. I moved to New York. Roy, he played on Bobby Watson's album called No Question About It, uh, which came out in 88. And so the stage was being set for Roy to be the next guy. He had signed a deal with RCA. Uh, Christopher Holliday had signed a deal with RCA. It was sort of like this snowball effect. All these young cats started getting contracts on these major labels. And a lot of older cats were not happy. Right. You know? Right. And uh, that's what I always remember about our generation. Like, um, there were a group of musicians who were sort of like in their 40s. Yep. 
you know, sort of like midlife who were getting overlooked. Like right. they didn't get any major label deals. They were quite, uh, you know, vociferous in, <laughs> in their uh, opposition and in, into what was happening with the younger cats, right, you know, right. but we understood that. So I think me, Roy Hargrove, Antonio Hart, Stephen Scott, Mark Whitfield, Greg Hutchinson, Dwayne Burno, Eric McPherson, Clarence Penn, uh, Mark Carey, Jeff Keezer, Brad Meldow, James Carter, Justin Robinson, Nicholas Payton was he he never lived in New York, but he he was our our generation. Chris Potter. Oh yeah. We went out of our way to make these older cats know how much we appreciated them because this wasn't about we the bad young cats on the scene, watch what we do. We were all like, we're taking our cues from the older cats. Right. You know, like I know how much time Mark Whitfield tried to spend with George Benson. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um and and Kenny Burrell, all all the great Pat Martino, yeah, you know. Yeah. And I, I went to go hang with Ray Brown yeah. and, and Ray Drummond and Rufus Reed and all these people around New York. So it was less about, you know, our our generation sort of making jazz resurgent as it was like, let's learn from the older cats while they're still here. Right. You know. Right. And 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 Betty Carter too, because Betty Carter, she uh she kept a foot in all of our asses. <laughs> she made it very clear that she was not impressed with, I mean, she, I always loved how she dedicated her career to mentoring young cats, but it wasn't in the way that was like that, that made a lot of us feel good. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly that, that feeling. You have also been a part of that evolution in terms of, you know, education and, passing things on and I want to ask you a little bit about that and and how you kind of got started. I know sure. I know you've uh, been a part of many different things. I know you're the director of the Jazz Aspen sessions, uh, the co-director of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. And the list kind of goes on and on. I, this, this is why I ask like where you find time in the day to fit all these things in, but obviously education and, and, and passing on, you know, tradition is important to you. Am I right? Absolutely. I, I feel like one of the reasons why, um, I mean, again, other than listening to these records and being so mesmerized by the music that I heard and, and wanting to, you know, somehow get on the inside of, of that circle. Um, I remember when people like Dr. Billy Taylor and Max Roach and Grover Washington Jr. and, Jimmy Heath, Curtis Fuller, Ron Carter, they would come and do master classes in Philly. Right. And knowing what I know now about being on the road, they really didn't have to do that, you know. And they really spent time with us and answered all of our questions and really kind of took the time to share stories with us. I mean, you know, it's like here I am, me, Joey DeFrancesco. Uh, my, my, my man, Antonio Parker, who's a part of our crew growing up here, we are sitting with Max Roach and we're like 13, 14 years old. And he's telling us stories about Charlie Parker. Yeah. I mean, like that's Max Roach, yeah. you know? And so I remember thinking that if I'm ever one day fortunate enough to be in the position where I can give back to, to the younger cats, it's a no brainer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because uh, I think those moments spent with those cats, that might have meant as much, if not more, to me than listening to the records. 
Yeah, I got to study with Youssef Latif in in college for like four Ooh. years, man. And he used to his office hours Monday. He yeah. would hang out, and and I would just go out. It, it was funny because the first couple of times I'd be like Youssef, uh, you know, and I would just ask him whatever because I just wanted to hang out with him. He had this presence that was so heavy. And uh, yes. it got to the point where I would just go hang out with him every Monday. And like there was a handful of us that would go hang out during his office, his entire office hours. And it wasn't like one person would come in and have a question and leave. I'd come in and a couple of people right. come in and he'd just he'd just take court and just, just, hang. And just hang and just tell stories about Coltrane and working in Dizzy and going to Africa. Cannonball, and Cannonball. Sure. man, Cannonball. Yeah. Whew. That's one of my right, favorite cats right. of all time, and and uh, the Nippon oh, Soul record, bro. Like I played that out. <laughs> Joe Zavinu. Yep. I remember he would say it like that. Uh, but man, like just hear that. Those and those moments to me are so important to, to this day, and I feel the same way, man. Yeah. You know, every any time that I can be a part of anything that that can be meaningful to a young musician, we have to do it. We have to do it. I'm sure you saw it, but uh, Gio Russinello wrote an article in the New York Times, I guess this was like maybe two months ago, two or three months ago, and he kind of puts, he kind of questions the methods in which jazz education has presented itself. Like like the, the model of, word of mouth, the sort of the folkloric way that this music has always been passed down, you know, uh, through to the clubs, yep. through the churches, through the community, through the street, you know, is jazz education sort of doing its job. And I find that it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a fine line, you know, because look, you and I both know if Miles Davis were alive, Freddie Hubbard was still alive. There's no way in hell they would be able to sustain a teaching position in some college, right? right? right. Because the way that they taught wouldn't be allowed. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. This is true. Yeah, I mean, they'd be cussing people out. You know, yeah. uh, you know, Miles came to Philly one time. It's on YouTube. He did like a live master class with these young trumpet players. And I mean, Miles was rough. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he told the truth. So it's like everybody wants the truth. But you just can't do it in a certain kind of way when you're in a scholastic setting. Of course. So I find that with uh, like the organization that my wife and I run, Jazz House Kids, you know, look, you want to be real with them. Yeah. But, you know, you don't want to be cruel. Right. Well, you don't want to send them home crying and quitting, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Either. Right. <laughs> See, you and I came up in the generation where, like, I heard Betty Carter tell Freddie Hubbard one time, she's like, you sound like shit. And I was like, damn. Whoa. Yeah. I was like, well, if she says that to Freddie Hubbard, now mind you, this was before Freddie lost his chops. Right. He was still sounding right. good. And Betty was like, no, nah, you ain't sound that good. You know, and I would hear Lou Donaldson, you yeah. know, oh, Betty Carter can't sing. Yeah. You know, it's like, these people were like real with each other, oh, like yeah. almost like cruel slash real, yeah, yeah. you know, but like, I mean, nobody really got their feathers ruffled about it. You know, it might be, you know, kiss my ass, yeah. you know, something like that. Yeah. But like nobody would go home and be like crying and, you know, getting on Twitter talking about, you know, how cruel Miles or Betty Carter was. They'd just be like, okay, well, I guess I'm sad. Let me go back and practice, you know. So I realize you can't be like that when you're in a scholastic setting 
or if you're in an institutional setting. And the question of uh, why can't you be, it, it just it just doesn't work that way. Right. You know what I mean? So like, I think my job as an educator, particularly if you're in, you know, if, if jazz house kids or with jazz Aspen or whatever it is, my job is to somehow prepare you for a professional opportunity. Right. Now, once you get that professional opportunity, forget about all that. You sound good, but, you know, you should practice this scale and, you know, listen to this record. You know, you might get out there in a the professional world. Somebody's going to say something to you you don't want to hear. It just actually might be true. So just prepare yourself to be told right. that. You just don't sound good all the time. Right, right. <laughs> Tough skin is important as a musician out here. Yeah. It's it's totally you know, man. I think one interesting thing and one thing that I've learned from you, I, you know, I've been a part of a, f- a few of your productions as a musical director. I've worked under you and then I've also subsequently or in certain cases been musical director. And a note that I've taken from you is a, be overprepared, be ready for anything, be ready for the plan to fall apart and and do it with yes. grace. And I also think that even though you are like at like on the highest level of musicianship in terms of like you're writing charts out, you're you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's, but you're also allowing the vibe to live. You know what I mean? You're allowing you're you're reading between the notes and you know, you know, we did the Apollo gig together and there were so many different changes going on and me and it never phased you and you never got mad at anybody and you never because I think that's an that's an important thing for people to know whether you're musical director on a massive level huge show yes. or you're or you're playing uh, the blue note you know with a quartet yeah. you have to yeah. be able to keep your cool even if even if Amir doesn't send you the tracks <laughs> and you got to go to yes. a Starbucks to scribble yeah. it down you yeah, got to be ready for right. all those things. And I think that's why learning from someone like you that has all of these experiences is a wonderful thing. You know what I mean? And that's like, you know, even with my experience, whenever I'm around somebody and that's a young musician, I'm like, listen, it's it, the scales are important. And I'm saying learn all of those and be prepared but also just know how to re- how to work with people in a way that they want to call you back and they want to hang out with you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Man, listen, man, I, I really th- thank you for saying that, man. I, I think that's the most important thing out of all of this, man. Yeah. I heard Clarence Avant say one time about Quincy Jones. I don't think this was in the documentary, The Black Godfather, which is an amazing documentary, yes, by the way. That. But I, I, I read this somewhere else and he says, um, Quincy Jones is greatest skill is not his arranging or his orchestrating it's his mastery of people yes i always kept that in mind you know like i think of all of the great you know musicians i've ever played with a lot of mds you know i've I've been in studios with people like patrick williams and johnny mandel and i can see how they talk to the orchestra or and like i've just taken a lot of lessons from a lot of different people like okay i'm going to use that I'm not going to use that. I like that. I'm taking that. And I watch how somebody like uh, Ricky Minor works with with people. That skill of being, having faith in knowing that magic happens when you let it happen. You know what I mean? Like, it's nuanced. As, 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 as As a musical director, you have to have a plan. Like you say, you have to be over prepared because it's kind of like, okay, here's my plan. 
that probably won't go down like that. Yeah. <laughs> so here's where the problem spots might occur. Okay, so let me come up with a plan B and C for that. Right. Because, okay. I think when people, when musicians feel like they are appreciated and you trust that they know what to do, they'll give you more than than they want to give you. Right. And sometimes what they give you that wasn't planned can turn into the best That's thing. That's right. <laughs> I know that That's in producing right. records, I always try to leave enough space between the plan <laughs> that like if somebody comes up with a great idea, that that great idea in the breath between the plans could be the greatest yeah. thing of the whole record. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's it. Totally. Totally. And man, like getting back to that, you know, bringing that, that book of tea gig up at, at the blue note, yeah. you know, like I'm, I'm panicking about that. Like, okay, I don't want to be unprepared. I don't want to look like a fool up here on stage. So when I went to that Starbucks, I mean, like th there's a part of me that's like, okay, yeah, I could have been huffing and puffing and getting upset. Like, you know, man, how come you didn't send me the tracks? You yeah. know, but like, that's probably not going to get the tracks to me any faster. <laughs> it's not like, going to make the gig any better either. You know it's not going to make the gig any yeah. better. The The main objective right now, okay, now you got the tracks, go figure it out. Yeah. It, it's probably going to take you up until the gig. Yes, it's a little inconvenient, but so what? Yeah. The gig is the most important thing. My convenience is not the most important thing right now. Right. The, the gig is the most important thing, you know, so... I, I always have the gig in mind. I, I could care less about, you know, my convenience. Right. Please stick around. We'll be right back after this short break. actually been a part of a lot of my most wonderful memories as a musician man like gig at the, at that the was, bowl that was a tribute. huge one man both of those yeah and that gig at the apollo Ooh, man yeah that was very very special to me man huge. and um i remember us playing um mighty mighty lisa fisher oh, yeah. with lisa fisher that night oh, yeah and i mean i remember like we rocking the house on that and uh nona hendrix rocking the house oh, yeah I mean, what a great gig that was, man. Yeah, and Avery Sunshine, I met that night, and have we've become good friends. So I appreciate that, too. That's, that's some more Philly yeah, right there. Avery and Dana, that's 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 family now. Man, I just appreciate that you trusted me to uh, <laughs> to hold up my, my part, man, you know? Man, as, as funky as you are, see that's, see, that's what I'm saying. Once you get some guys, some, some cats that you know, you know they're going to bring it. You, you trust them to be completely professional. You know you don't have to say anything to them. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? That's why I know, that, you know, Quincy had his go-to guys. Tommy LaPuma had his go-to guys. Yeah. Bob James had his go-to guys. Everybody has their go-to guys. You know, you're one of my go-to guys, man. I, I, you, you already know what the deal is. I don't, I don't have to tell you nothing. It's a true honor, man. It's a true, true honor. Uh, so tell me about uh, current projects. I know you've got the uh, Jazz Night in America that you're hosting. I think your most me uh, recent release is The Movement Revisited, uh, which is especially poignant at this time. Um, so maybe you can yeah. just talk a little bit about that, that project. The Movement Revisited is probably... Um well, not probably. It's definitely the, the biggest thing I've ever written. 
uh, I got a commission from the Portland Art Society, and this is in Portland, Maine, yep. over 20 years ago to write a piece, a, a long-form extended piece for uh, some black history programming they were doing. But the only stipulation of the commission was that I use a gospel choir. And, you know, I didn't know anything about writing for choirs or arranging for choirs. So I almost didn't take the gig, you know, because I was like, I, I don't know anything about choirs. I, I don't know what to do. So they introduced me to J.D. Steele. And uh, J.D. became like my, um, he became my foil in, in putting this piece together, at, at least certainly for the choir. I decided that I would write a piece that was dedicated to, um, I mean, we talk about black history. There's no shortage of things to choose from or, or people or things or places or events that you can call on for inspiration. So I whittled it down to four people. So I decided to write a musical portrait, uh, a four-part suite, and dedicate it to Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So we played that piece in 1998. At that time, it was just my quartet and a small choir, and the narrators, I basically took various quotes from all four people and wrote music around it. And uh, those uh, recitations were done by people in the choir. Um, and then 10 years went by, never played the piece again. I became the creative chair for jazz programming for the LA Phil in 2006. My boss at that time, I don't even know how she found out about it. She said, hey, I hear, uh, I hear you wrote some piece for like something called the Movement Revisited or something. You know, I said, yeah, yeah, I did that. She said, well, tell me about it. it you know, if, if we might be able to program it this season. I, I thought I was thinking on my feet. I said, OK, well, this is my opportunity to really blow this piece out the real the way I really wanted to do it. Right, right. So so I lied. <laughs> I said, <laughs> Oh yeah, it's a piece I wrote for for big band, yeah, and uh, gospel choir and and four narrators. And Laura was like, "Okay, we should do that." Yeah, you know. And of course, by her saying "Okay," I was like, "Oh now shit!" You gotta now do I got to actually, <laughs> I got to actually really really rewrite it. You know. Yeah. So I I went and completely rewrote the entire piece for for big band. Yeah. So we premiered it at Walt Disney Concert Hall in May of '08. Five months later, Obama was elected president. By that time, I already had the Movement Revisited book to play at the University of Michigan. We were going to perform it there in February of 19. Right. And uh, the, the director of the Detroit Jazz Festival at that time, Terry Pontremoli, she called me up because she booked it. She says, hey, look, can I make you an offer? Like, you know, we'll pay you a little extra money if you want to add on a movement to the movement, right. you know, like something commemorating Obama. Right. And I said, oh, okay, that's, that's not a bad idea. So I didn't want to write a piece for Obama. Like, I didn't want to write a, a movement and dedicate it to Obama. You know, the man hadn't been president. Yeah. He actually hadn't even been officially sworn in yet right. when I started writing it. So I said, well, it might be a little premature to, to write him a movement. Right. So let's see how he does first. <laughs> no, let's see how he does first. So I, I wrote a movement dedicated to his inauguration right, of course, like, yeah. like that moment yeah. you know because that moment would not have happened obviously without people like rosa parks and ali and malcolm x and mlk 
So uh, the final movement is called Apotheosis, November 4th, 2008. That's how it got recorded. We recorded it in 2013 because of uh, trying to obtain all of the uh, legal rights to be able to release it. Yeah. It took like six years, man. Right. You know, right. like de- dealing with the MLK estate and the Ali. I mean, Ali was still alive right. when uh, when you recorded when, it. When we first, uh, yeah. Wow. Once he died, it slowed it up even more, and so it took six years to come out, but it finally came out. Wow. It sounds really good, though. I mean, it's, it almost sounds like I can tell it's live, but it also has like like the the voices all sound like studio quality i listened to it this morning oh thank you man yeah man but it also resonates even more powerfully now possibly than ever well you know i was really sad because like as mac avenue records was going through all of the the legal stuff i kept thinking i was like man you know i really would like to somehow get this out while obama is still in office yeah time just kept flying by and you know kept getting knocked back and and then you know trump became president and then i was just like man this is just this is depressing right of course because <laughs> i'm thinking like now the movement revisited is not going to have much meaning right but how, how wrong was right. i you know i'm thinking the messages in the movement revisited are more important now than ever yeah which is insane if you think about it, you know, especially. Oh, absolutely. It's ridiculous. You know? I mean, I hope that we're turning the corner and um, we all hope that 2021 will be, you know, at least we'll start to see the light at the end of the tunnel and things will start to change. That's all. I mean, it's going to yeah. be a long road. Yeah. You talk about restoration of, uh, you know, of a structure. Yeah. You know, the whole thing's been blown up. So now we got to, you know, it's going to be a long climb back, putting those bricks back one by one. One by one. Yeah. I mean, if the only silver lining to it is that is that the racists and the all of these people that were in the shadows, are they're in the light now. You know what I mean? They're coming out. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's the only silver lining that I can see in that part of it. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of work to do. We'll get it done. You know, I if 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 you don't have optimism, you know, you just you wind up with anxiety and depression all the time, and that and that never helps anything. I I always I always do my best to to think positive. Absolutely, you got the jazz night in America going on right now. You got any other other uh, musical projects on the horizon? Well, actually, there was another recording that came out after the movement revisited. Uh, something with our man, Mark Whitfield. Um, ah, okay, it's called okay. for, for, for Jimmy, Wes, and Oliver. It's my big band with uh, Joey D and, and Mark Whitfield. And oh, we play man. all of the uh, Jimmy Smith, Wes Montgomery, oh. Oliver Nelson charts. Oh, man. That is some of the show. Oliver Nelson charts. That is and the... so uh, I, I, I think you would like that. That Junior JB's thing you found? Oh, yeah, yeah. Check this out. So I, I think we did that. Was that 2011 or 2012? 2012, I believe. Yeah. 2012. Right. Okay. So as you well remember, that was for uh, John Schaefer's show, Soundcheck, right. Right, which right. was on WNYC at that time. John went on vacation. I was his sub for, for three days. And like, I had a little bit of radio experience, you know, just, and I, I think I subbed for, uh, for Mary McPartland on piano jazz a couple of times, but that show was taped. Yeah. You know, I, I had been the voice of like the NEA jazz masters thing. They used to put together like a, a radio special, but all that stuff was taped. John Schaefer's show was live. Right. 
I remember somebody from WNYC called and said, um, Christian, would you be interested in, in being the guest host for Soundcheck while John is on vacation? I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and in, in the back of my brain, I'm like, that's live radio. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I went in for a consultation, like, you know, like the day, a couple days before, and they walked me around the studio and like, okay, here's your console right here. Here's your laptop. If you get any callers, press this button here. Your, your director is going to be on this button right here. We're going to send you messages in the thread, and I'm getting scared to death. Like, oh, yeah. oh, man. Oh, my God. That first day, man, I'm sitting in there, and I'm sitting there in the chair. You know, I had to read, like, news leads and right. stuff like that. Right. You know, you know, this is Christian McBride filling in for John Schaefer on Soundcheck. Today in, in uh, uh, Russia, news out of Russia, Vladimir P- Putin. Yeah. And, and I've got to read all this stuff, right? And um, I'm scared to death, man. And they were like, uh, okay, Christian, you're alive in five, four. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm going on live radio in New wow. York City. Oh, my God. Yeah. And um, so you were part... The, you know, the Junior JBs was part of that that three day, and you were also performing and talking between and we the also performances. Performed. I mean, now you were like juggling eight things at once. I firmly believe that those three days on WNYC is why I was able to get the gig with Jazz Night in America. Right. I think somebody at NPR heard that and was like, "Okay, yeah. he he passed." <laughs> right. 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 Do you love that? I mean, it seems like you're so good at at, at being a host, you know, and uh, uh, somewhat of a commentator. You know, is that something you ever thought about when you were coming up, or did it, you just just stumble upon? Not it? at all. I mean, that was totally some accidental stuff, man. I think I love I love people so much, and. I'm not really that afraid. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm not afraid because everybody's afraid. But like if I fall on my ass, I'm not really that embarrassed. I don't think I'm embarrassed enough to like, you know, say like, oh, my God, let me run away. So like if I'm if I'm on live radio and I screw up or if if I'm on a gig and I play some wrong notes, you know, I might be like, ah, damn, you know. Yeah. But uh, I don't I don't take myself quite that seriously. And I love people. So like, I think that combination makes it makes hosting kind of fun for me. And and I think also like being a total Johnny Carson junkie when I was a kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I came (laughs) up on Johnny, too. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. I used to love it when like when Johnny's jokes would bomb. I almost thought he was funnier when the jokes didn't go over or like, you know, something, something didn't go down the way it was supposed to happen. He always dealt with a crisis in a, in a funny way. So I always remembered that when I was a kid. Yeah. And that's kind of the exciting part and also kind of the endearing part where you can relate a little bit because he's not perfect. You know what I mean? But the way he reacts to it was kind of almost like he said, even funnier than the actual line. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Letterman had that too. Yeah. I really, really enjoy talking with you, man. I appreciate you being on the show. And man, I just look up to all the things that you do, man, really do. And I, and I appreciate you being, you know, somewhat of a mentor to me and my crew, you know? Oh, well, brother, you already know how I feel about you, man. I'm, I'm flattered that you asked me to be your, your guest. I really do look forward to the next time we play together again, because whenever that is, I know it's going to be funky. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate you. It's always, <laughs> always an honor. And whenever you call me, you know I'm there in, in a flash. So, um, again, thank you so much, my friend. Anytime, my man. 
I want to thank Christian McBride for being on the show. So cool to catch up with him. I'm just so thankful for his friendship and his mentorship. He's an incredible musician and a great dude. Before we go, I'm going to play a track off of his project called Philadelphia Experiment featuring Questlove and Yuri Kane. This track is called Grover.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email krazplus1 at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.